Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Friday morning, uh, the 22nd of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Founded in 1976, uh, the European People's Party is a centre-right political grouping made up of political parties from over 25 countries across Europe. Fine Gael is a member of the EPP and its four MEPs vote with the bloc in the European Parliament. The Taoiseach Leo Varadkar and the Minister for European Affairs, Helen McEntee were in Zagreb this week to meet with their European counterparts and uh, the newly elected EPP President Donald Tusk. Ten vice presidents were elected, one of them being the Irish Minister and Mead East TD, Helen McEntee. The Taoiseach said it has been a very good EPB Congress. We have successfully secured the election of Helen McEntee as an EPP Vice President, winning the third seat out of ten. So a very good day in that regard, according to Leo Vradker. Helen McEntee is on the line. A very good morning to you, Minister, and congratulations to you. Good morning, Michael. Thank you very much. Tell me a a little bit about your role and explain to our listeners uh, what uh, importance uh, there is to this role. Well, I I suppose first and foremost, it's important to say that I'm not going anywhere. So I will continue to be a TD for Mid East. Uh, I will continue to represent my constituents and, and I will continue to be Ireland's Minister for European Affairs. What this means, though, is that I will now be in a position, as you said, Donald Tusk, who has and will be up until the beginning of December uh, being the President of the Council, which is where the Taoiseach meets with his European counterparts. He will now be President of the European People's Party and he will have working with him 10 Vice Presidents, um, of which now I I, I will be one of those. Uh, And essentially the European People's Party, it is the largest grouping of political parties throughout Europe. There's over 70 parties of which Fine Gael is one of, um, actually across 40 different countries because it's not just within the EU. Um, there are European countries as well, from Norway to Switzerland. You have the Western Balkans. You have countries of the Eastern Partnership, those who are looking to join the European Union as well. And within that, essentially, those structures, uh, many people are represented either 
um, on the Council of Europe, like the Taoiseach, mm. you have those who are leaders of parties, you have those who are prime ministers, you have those who are MEPs, you have people who are working in the Commission. Um, and essentially, it means that I now have an opportunity, similar to my colleague before me, Dara Murphy, Lucinda Creighton, and De Kenny was a vice president, as was John Bruton. I now have an opportunity to be around the table where policy decisions are being made, where discussions are being had on significant issues that are being discussed at the European level, but that I bring an Irish voice to the table. The um, Taoiseach, I'd, the Taoiseach was, sorry, the Taoiseach was uh, criticised uh, this week by Micheál Martin, who wanted to ask uh, why the uh, launch of uh, the contract, uh, the signing of uh, the contract for the broadband plan was made into a, a political event uh, and uh, the Taoiseach was criticised for not being in the doll to answer that question because he was uh, attending uh, a political event uh, and there's further criticism uh, because he travelled uh, to Croatia on the government jet. Uh, is any of this appropriate? Well, firstly, Mihal Martin has consistently until I think this week when the contract was signed um, said that we should not be signing this contract. And when I look at our own county mm. and the fact that 76 million is going to be spent on rural Ireland connecting people, this is a very good plan and this is a plan that has been driven by this government. So for the uh, opposition leader to say that this is a political announcement when he has essentially opposed it from day one, but now supports it when he sees how much has been invested in rural Ireland. Did you travel to to a political event, Minister, on the government jet? No, I didn't. Uh, I was in Brussels and I went directly from Brussels to this event. The Taoiseach travelled, but while he was in Zagreb, had a number of national meetings. He met with the Prime Minister of Croatia. He met with Irish citizens, diaspora people who are living in Croatia. And he had a number of meetings with other party leaders and other uh, political groupings. So I think you can criticise him and say, well, he should have taken a commercial flight. Mm. He had government business when he was in Croatia. And yes, he was attending a political event also. But he is the Taoiseach of this country. And if he is uh, meeting with the Prime Minister of other countries, then, you know, I suppose, what is it there for if it's not for our Taoiseach to be able to do that? So, you know, people can make up their own mind on that. But this was uh, a visit to meet with the Prime Minister of Croatia. He met with the Irish communities. He had okay, a number but of the, other meetings But it, it seems it. a legitimate criticism, doesn't it, when the Taoiseach isn't in the Parliament uh, to do the job uh, he's been tasked with uh, and uh, to act as uh, the leader of uh, this country and the important issues uh, at hand uh, and is abroad at a political event at a significant cost to the taxpayer. Well, this is not a cost to the taxpayer when it comes to uh, the fact that any accommodation, anything like that, is paid for by our party. No, for the government jet, Minister. But the Taoiseach is taking part in government business. And people will look at the fact that over the past number of years, we have been absolutely focused on Brexit and the people who we have been engaged with, like Michel Barnier, Mm. like Donald Tusk, like Jean-Claude Juncker, like Angela Merkel, and indeed our new president-elect, Ursula von der Leyen, they have been hugely instrumental in making sure that Ireland's position, that our point of view, but most importantly, that our priorities have been met throughout this entire process. So the Taoiseach actually met uh, with Michel Barnier. He met with a number of other leaders as well. And yes, Brexit was on the agenda. So to say that it was party political, to say that he was not representing our country, is completely not true. And again, I would say the fact that Michael Martin uh, is now suddenly supporting a project that he has utterly rejected up until now, Mm. um, you know, I I think it's disingenuous to say that. 
uh, the Taoiseach should have been there to answer questions. We're very clear we're spending tens of millions, of hundreds of millions uh, of euro on rural land. No, he was making uh, the point that you were using that occasion uh, for political gain uh, and uh, you weren't there to answer questions about that because you were at a a political event. Uh, And then yesterday it was uh, mentioned that the government jet was used to ferry the Taoiseach there at a significant cost to the taxpayer. As a a vice president now of the EPP, Minister, I I take it you're a spokesperson for the European uh, People's Party. I am, yes. As I said, we have been affiliated, Fine Gael, with the European People's Party. In fact, we were one of the founding mm. members in 1976. We are the only party in Ireland to be uh, a member of the European People's Party. So, yes, it means that I represent not just my own constituency, the people of Ireland, but also now um, I see this as an opportunity, in particular, particularly as a young person, particularly as one of only three women elected to this position. I think it's extremely important to me that I represent that young voice young people in Ireland, but young people across Europe. That, well that, that right-wing voice in Europe. I take it you support uh, the right-wing views of the People's Party in Spain against uh, the people of Catalonia and indeed Basque separatists. It's not a right-wing view. In fact, I am anything but right-wing. Um, we do not have uh, far-right political parties or indeed far-left political parties in Ireland. Uh, the EPP group is a centre-right and has always been a centre-right uh, and in fact, I would see Fine Gael as being a more centre party. And, and I think that's very clear given the policies that we have implemented and mm. the work that we have done on many social issues in Ireland. Uh, even if you look at the recent referendum on marriage equality, uh, on the Eighth Amendment and others. Yeah. So I think very clearly... Yeah, but you, 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 to- you, you, you told the Dáil a month ago that you supported the Spanish Supreme Court's verdict uh, in relation to Catalonia. Undoubtedly, that's a line with uh, the Spanish People's Party uh, and uh, they, the, the view that they take a- against the people of Catalonia. Well, in the same way that other countries, other ministers, other MEPs, other representatives... Um, understand well, the right wing groups. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, you're, you're you're at odds with Amnesty International in relation to this. In the same way that I respect the courts of other countries, other countries respect the courts in our uh, in our jurisdiction, and I respect the decision that was taken by the court in Spain. I respect the, the territorial integrity. You, you, you reject um, that it's a vague definition of the crime of sedition uh, and uh, that uh, the Spanish leaders, the Catalan leaders, uh, have uh, been unlawfully jailed uh, and indeed uh, that the terms of uh, the sentences that have been given to them have been unreasonable uh, and that the decision of the courts is uh, a violation of the rights of freedom to expression expression and peaceful assembly. I absolutely respect the decision that has been taken by the courts in another country and I think any country would reflect the same as it came to our own court system and we would expect that also. What I do utterly condemn is any form of violence, not least by those who are protesting, but in particular by any form of police in any country. And I have said that very clearly on the record. And and when you refer to me in the Dáil, I very clearly stated that, that the only way that we can resolve what are very clearly differences in Spain and in Catalonia is through peaceful means and through dialogue. And that has not happened to date. And I have called for, and I think our government has called for that to take place, for peaceful dialogue to happen 
on this engagement. But I, I can assure you, and I think the people who have voted for me know very well that I am not a right-wing politician uh, and I have never aspired to that position and, and never will. What I want mm. to do is ensure that the views of the people who I represent at a local level, but also uh, but, at a national level for our country, that that is reflected in the policies that we put in place at a European level. But as a spokesperson for the EPP... The issues that we resolve. Minister, as a spokesperson for the EPP, you are a spokesperson for Fidesz in Hungary. Aren't you a spokesperson for Viktor Orban? Uh, well, again, I think what's very clear, Viktor Orban and his party were not at the Congress. They have been suspended because of the decisions that they have taken as a party. And these are decisions that I have myself personally, either in our European Affairs Committee, in the Dole or the General Affairs Party, uh, utterly um, rejected. So they have made decisions which have meant that uh, community and voluntary organisations um, have been restricted in their ability to support migrants and, and uh, immigrants in their country. They have made decisions which have meant that a European college has had to remove itself from Hungary. I, I do not support that at all. And at the moment, and, and this was referred to by Donald Tusk at the Congress, um, that there is a report being done on all of this and potentially they will be expelled or could be expelled from the EPP. So I think until we see that report and see what direction that goes. But I have been unequivocal in in saying that I do not support the positions that they have taken. And because of that, they have been suspended. They were not able to vote at the Congress uh, and they were not represented. So, you know, we need to be clear that, that, yes, within a party in the same way that if I'm a member of Fine Gael, I do not agree wholeheartedly with absolutely everything that my colleagues agree with, but we work together. And in the same view that I think it's important for me to be part of Fine Gael because I believe in its policies and its approach, I believe in working together. I think working at a, a European level with our colleagues across 70 different parties in 40 countries, it means mm. that we can get things done, we can work together, we can work on not just European issues, but international issues like climate, like migration, um, and, and, you know, not just representing young Irish people, but representing young people across the world as well. So, and is know, it that you want Victor Orban's uh, Fidesz uh, to be expelled because of uh, the attitude towards migration? Well, I, I think there are a number of things that they have as a party done done in recent times. And, and as I've said, I, I don't support that. And depending on the report that's ongoing, I, I think until we, we see that, there's no point, you know, I don't want to comment on it, but um, they have not changed their approach. They have not changed their position. The, the, the European College has left, which I think is a great pity. Um, so I, I think we need to wait, wait and see what the report comes out with. But, you know, as I said, I, I do not support the positions that they have taken. Okay. And if it continues in that way, uh, then yes, there is a possibility that they will be expelled. OK, well, there's some questionable opinions on migration within Fine Gael, aren't there? Well, if you're referring to, to recent events and if you're referring to, to comments by um, our by-election candidates, I will be very clear, I don't support those views. Uh, as a party, Fine Gael has said that we don't support those views. But I think what's important, and, and this is very different to what we've just discussed in terms of Fidesz, uh, the candidate has apologised, she has retracted uh, the comments that she made, she has said that they were made perhaps uh, from a place of ignorance in terms of not understanding exactly what she was talking about. And I think that's very different to somebody insisting that these are their views um, and uh, not uh, retracting or not apologising. So, you know, yes, there are often things said and, and we don't always agree with everything. But as a party, we are probably one of the most diverse parties having the fact that we uh, ran eight candidates from mm. a migrant background in the local elections more than anybody else. Four were elected. And I believe that we are a party that welcomes people from all backgrounds. 
um, and from all uh, countries and, and political persuasions as well. Will you canvass for Verona Murphy? I, I won't have an opportunity to. Um, what, I would you? I with Senator James Riley. Um, I, I, I would if I could mm, because okay. she is a candidate for Fine Gael. Um, it's the people of Wexford who will decide whether or not they want her okay, to so you don't, you, 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 apologise. You, you don't support her views but you accept that she's apologised and retracted uh, the comments. Uh, do you support uh, the comments uh, that the Taoiseach made about people from Georgia and Albania? Which comments are these apologies, Michael? Uh, about uh, the country being swamped with people from Georgia and uh, Albania who are coming here uh, on false documentation uh, for economic reasons. Well, I, I think what the Taoiseach was referring to is the fact that some of the highest numbers of those who are coming, um, who are not legal migrants, are coming from those countries. Um, and what we need to try and do is work with those countries. And, and I've met with the ambassador, I meet with them regularly, the ambassador from Georgia and from other countries. These are um, countries who would aspire and would hope to join the European Union so that their countries, so that their citizens have the same rights and privileges and the same opportunities that we have, um, which they feel maybe they currently don't have from an economic point of view. So, you know, I think the Taoiseach was referring to, and, and I'm guessing referring to the, the figures and the fact that so they are the, the, the people who are coming uh, in the highest numbers um, who are not um, legal migrants, so to speak, um, who are coming from an economic background, not being persecution or war uh, or, or those type of uh, situations. Is that all of the people from Albania or all of the people from Georgia who are coming here for economic reasons? Well, Albania is obviously a country who is hoping to, to join the European Union mm. and we've uh, recently had discussions on the enlargement process which would open up a session and negotiations mm. for Albania but also North Macedonia and unfortunately and, and I But when uh, they come here when they come here they only, uh, 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 when they come here are they coming for economic reasons? If they're coming from Albania, then yes, they would be coming for economic reasons. This is a country that is looking to join the European Union and looking to open up right. a session, the, the accession process, as it's called, um, that was unfortunately rejected in the last council meeting, which I attended. But it's something mm. that I support and that Ireland supports because we wanted the Albania right. as part of the European and Union. And when they come from Georgia, are they coming for economic reasons? Well, I, I, I don't know exactly why people are coming and I can't say exactly where each individual but yes they would be more likely okay. coming for economic reasons. Okay that doesn't give a, a very good impression of anybody here from Albania or Georgia does it Minister? It, it's purely saying that people are coming because they think that there's more opportunity in this country it's well, not yeah. reflecting mm -hmm. badly on anybody I've been to Albania I've met with people from Albania and they are um the people that I've met are wonderful people, so it's not a bad reflection at all. As I said, I regularly engage with the ambassador from Georgia. But it gives everybody listening the impression that they shouldn't be here, that they've no right to be here. That's not the case at all. We have a process. Um, and if you are within the European Union, you have the right and the ability to travel and to live and to work yeah, no, and, study and to do all of these. But if you're from outside, you of, out if, if you're outside of the European Union, you don't have that right, uh, which is uh, the case with Albania and Georgia. Uh, and uh, the question is, if uh, they're economic migrants, you've said they are, that gives the impression that none of them have the right to be here. That's not what I'm saying at all. Um, I'm saying that if you go through the proper channels, and if you try to uh, go to any country, you have to do mm. it through the proper channels. You can't just, and I can't just decide 
that I'm going to go to Australia without well, that's, 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 that's the same, that's the same as anybody. Yeah? The Taoiseach didn't mention people from Australia. Uh, it would apply to them or it would apply to Americans. Uh, the, the Taoiseach specifically mentioned Georgia and Albania uh, and you yourself uh, have echoed what he said and it gives everybody a very bad impression of those people, doesn't it? Well, no, I don't think it does. I, I think you're trying to say that it does, but to me it certainly doesn't. What he's saying is that the highest numbers of people um, are from those countries. And I think he was merely stating a fact. I'm not saying anything negative about those people. In fact, I want those countries to be able to, in the future, join the European Union. There are challenges and there are changes that within their own structures, in their own countries, they need to continue making. But in particular, Albania, it is part of a discussion with North Macedonia at the moment, where we in Ireland is 100% supportive of discussions opening up, which would allow them to join the European Union, which would mean that they themselves, and and I think the biggest problem for them in in the Western Balkans, is that so many of their younger people are leaving because they see that there are greater opportunities in other countries. We want them to be able to stay in their own country in the same way that I want Irish people to have jobs in Ireland, to not feel that they need to leave to go somewhere else to seek a better future. People in Albania want better future for their younger people in their own country. And that necessarily is not the case at the moment. That's why they're making huge changes. That's why they've made huge reforms Mm. in recent years. That's why they're looking to join and open up the whole process, which, you know, won't happen Mm, overnight. It might take 10, 15 years. And that's that's why they're sneaking in here, is it? Well, you know, again, you can try and and say that I'm I'm painting a negative picture. I'm not. I think the Taoiseach was very uh, much stating the fact that the highest number of people from countries who are coming who are in that, illegally here. Who are illegally here, mm-hmm. but I mean, there is a process. I can't illegally travel to Australia. I have no. to go through a process. Other people can't do that. And, you know, again, if we can work with them to make sure that they are on the right track to becoming European member states themselves, then perhaps some of the people who are coming here um you know, won't need to come here because they'll feel there's more opportunity at home. So this is about working with each other. This is about creating opportunity for everybody, not just for us, but for other countries. And and as Minister for European Affairs, I've been very clear on that. In fact, I think I've been probably one of the most supportive um, of our, our Western countries when it comes to the enlargement process, supporting Albania, supporting North Macedonia. I've been to Serbia, I've been to um, Bosnia-Herzegovina, I've been to Montenegro, mm-hmm. um, all with the anticipation that these countries would be able to join Europe. Okay, well, uh, your uh, CV has uh, certainly expanded uh, overnight, uh, becoming the vice president or one of the vice presidents of the European People's Party. Minister, thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme. Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, that's Finnegale TD for Mead East and Minister for European Affairs, vice president of the European People's Party, Helen McEntee. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now, Monday is uh, the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. Uh, let's uh, hear a little bit more about this. Fiona O'Malley is Communications uh, Director with World Vision Ireland. A very good morning to you, Fiona, and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, maybe you'd begin by telling us what violence against women is, because this was officially defined in 1993. Absolutely. So the Declaration of the Elimination of Violence Against Women, which was issued by the UN General Assembly in 1993, defines violence against women as any act of gender-based violence that results in or is likely to result in physical, sexual or psychological harm or suffering to the woman. And that includes threats of such acts, coercion or arbitrary deprivation of liberty uh, in public and in private life. 
Um, and it remains largely unreported because um, internationally because of the lack of support services and this violent stigma and shame surrounding it. And violence against women can manifest itself in physical, mm-hmm. sexual, psychological forms, including intimate partner violence, um, which includes battery, psychological abuse, marital rape, femicide, human trafficking, um, female genital mutilation and child marriage. And World Vision Ireland uh, is working to raise awareness of these issues in Ireland and abroad. And we firmly believe that with international support, education and empowering women, we can significantly reduce these figures. And the shocking figures are that one in three women and girls experience physical or sexual violence in their lifetime. Which Um, obviously means uh, that we're failing uh, in respect of this. There's a, a lot to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and one of the shocking statistics that come under that one in three are that um, almost 750 million women and girls who are alive today were married before their 18th birthday. And internationally, according to the UN, 200 million women and girls have undergone uh, FGM, that's female uh, genital mutilation. And FGM is uh, defined as the partial or total removal of external female genitalia um, or any uh, practice that deliberately uh, changes or injures um, female genital organs for non-medical re- reasons and at World Vision Ireland um, we just really want to emphasise that this procedure has absolutely no health benefits to women or children and the procedures can cause severe bleeding and problems urinating, cysts, infections as well as complications in childbirth and increased risk of newborn deaths. It's uh, FGM is a complete violation of a girl or a woman's right to health, security, physical integrity, the right to be free from torture and cruel, inhumane or degrading treatment and the right to life uh, when the FGM procedure results in death. The practice internationally is recognised as a human rights violation of women and girls um, and it's actually it's quite difficult to know exactly how many women in Ireland specifically have undergone FGM because uh, girls are removed from the state, usually by their parents to have it done, but this is a criminal offence to remove a girl from the state to mutilate their genitals under the uh, Criminal Justice FGM Act 2012. Mm. Um, and according to according to Rovers Ireland and to the HSE, since 2011, there have been um, about... Uh, 3,780 women in Ireland who have undergone FGM and um, mm-hmm. the levels of FGM continue to rise in Ireland and in new European Institute for Gender mm. yeah. Equality report it shows that it's, 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 it's growing as I said um, yeah. in Ireland. Uh, and o- only known to us if it's reported obviously uh, like, like a, a lot of issues including marital rape and uh, you have interesting statistics on uh, the decisions women make and the decisions women don't make in marriage. Absolutely yeah yeah and it's as you know it, as I said, it's quite difficult to get an exact statistic. Um, a lot of it can be estimations, but um, either way, we're, we're obviously trying to raise awareness and um, we believe that um, through uh, robust international peace agreements and supporting women in vulnerable communities, we can really hope to tackle and correct um, the issue of violence against women. Okay. Well, the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women is on Monday of next week. Uh, We leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us here this morning. Fiona O'Malley, Communications Director with World Vision Ireland. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. 
Five women have died violently since the beginning of this year in this country. A total of 230 women have died violently in this country over the course of the last 23 years. And since 1996, 16 children have died alongside their mothers. This is according to the Women's Aid Annual Femicide Watch Report. And Gillian Dennehy, Services Manager with Women's Aid, has been telling me more. Well, often, you know, these murders are portrayed in the media as isolated incidents. Oh, that it was an act of rage, it just happened, you know, with jealousy, all this kind of things. And we're trying to dispel that myth that this isn't an isolated incident. Actually, we have 230 women, you know, who were murdered um, and that we're just trying to kind of cast light and shed some some light on, you know, these women who are who were murdered, um, and to kind of say, let let's not let have their 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 murders in vain. Let's learn from them. And what we're trying to push for is domestic homicide reviews in particular, and that is to look at those who were killed by intimate partners, by current or ex partners, to to actually let's review those homicides. And let's let's learn lessons from them and prevent future homicides in the community because domestic homicides can be prevented. Because there's um, warning signs, is it? Um, there, there is indeed. Um, and, you know, what's really clear is because I've worked on domestic homicide reviews in the UK. And what's really clear when you actually get agencies around the table and you involve family and you involve friends is actually how much information everyone holds. So um, Pete, the perpetrator, has perhaps gone to his GP. And talked about relationship problems. You know, you've got the victim maybe going to their GP for depression. Um, you have, you know, the children going to school, you know, missing school days. Um, you've got family and friends who kind of know a lot about what's going on or bits and pieces of it. And nobody kind of knows what to do. Um, so the GP treats the depression. You know, the this, this school kind of say, oh, look, he's missing days. What's going on? But they don't, you know, maybe not delving enough into it. And nobody really kind of putting it together actually is there domestic abuse happening in this home mm. you know that we need to address and, and do they you know do all the agencies and organizations have policies and procedures to address this do they know what to do because often what we found in the uk is that um agencies are afraid to ask the question because they're kind of like they don't want to open that pandora box because they don't know what to do with it they don't feel they're resourced for it so it's not like agencies and people and you know professionals do not care they do care it's just that are they resourced and are they trained in knowing what to do when it is disclosed and you're of the belief obviously that there is a pattern of behaviour a pattern of male abuse and perhaps uh, the type of abuse that some women listening to us now are enduring and we can uh, give out uh, your helpline it's a 24 hour helpline in a few minutes time if people want to get a a pen handy Uh, but uh, you had a lot of people who made contact with you over the course of the last year in excess of 19,000 people who made contact with you uh, and that's 19,000 people that you're obviously concerned about. Yes, of course. That's, you know, yeah, that's 19,000 contacts with us um, and it's, you know, many, you know, women, um, you know, informing us about, you know, threats to kill that they've um, experienced, uh, being strangled, being choked, being smothered, um, being, you know, coercively, con- you know, controlled in all aspects of their life, financial abuse, um, emotional and psychological abuse because what's really important uh, here Michael is that it's not just um, about physical abuse because mm. um, actually it's you know from from research we know now um, that actually coercive control and what we call jealous surveillance so kind of following stalking harassment behavior actually can often be where women are at the highest risk 
Um, so it's not just always about physical abuse because if, if somebody's so controlled, they're abused or sometimes doesn't need you know doesn't need to use that physical abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these are women. We, you know, of course, we you know we are concerned about, um, but it's really important that they are reaching out. Um, you know, they're talking to someone um, because often they're told it's their fault, and what we want to say it's not your fault. You do not deserve this. Um, but that actually, if you are thinking about separating from somebody, that you do it in a safe way, um, that you don't tell the person, because um, it is a very high-risk time and, and separation, um, and that you come to specialist um, organisations like ourselves and Women's Day with our 24-hour helpline. Also, I know I'm talking now to Loud Need, um, so there is local um, or um, organisations, obviously there is, um, you know, Dundalk um, Women's Aid, um, there's also Jada Women's Refuge and Support Services, and there's also Mead Women's Refuge and Support Services. Um, and so, you know, when you call our 24-hour helpline, we can give you information um, about those local services as well. Um, and so come to us and we can go on that journey with you um, to safety. Uh, at the heart of this is uh, control, having power over somebody, uh, whether that's uh, psychological abuse or coercive uh, behaviour, as uh, the case may be, or if it culminates uh, in physical violence or, or indeed uh, murder, has been, as has been the case uh, with 230 women over the course of the last 23 years. Included in, the, in that figure are, are some women uh, who are... Uh, not uh, recorded as being deceased as yet, some of the missing. Uh, why have you decided to include them in this report? Yes, I mean, we think it's, you know, very, it's important because, you know, those, those there is still, we're talking here, a report's name is The Legacy of Loss. Um, so those women are, are lost to their families. You know, no longer can they celebrate birthdays, Christmas, any important family events with those women. Um, you know, there's a big uh, hole in, in those families and those friends and those communities' lives where those women were. We know those women have left behind children um, and those children are experiencing that um, loss as well so deeply. Um, and it's just really important for us. Again, um, we feel that, you know, we want to raise the status of these women. We want to say, you know, this, you know, we want to acknowledge this and say this is happening you know, these are women that are, you know, are are brutally removed from our community. Um, and we want to say this isn't, you know, we want to create outrage, really, Michael. That's what we want to create, outrage about this, that this is happening. Um, and we want our demands met then, you know. We want people to listen to the families um, of those bereaved um, and to listen to organisations like ourselves about what needs to be done um, to address this. Okay, and I suppose it's an opportunity in itself to highlight uh, the plight of families uh, who want uh, their loved ones returned to them. And uh, we uh, would know locally of... uh Kira Breen, who is uh, presumed to be dead, uh, but there's uh, many women across uh, the country uh, and many families uh, who are grieving the loss uh, without having had the opportunity to have a, a Christian burial. Oh, exactly. And, and like, not actually having answers. You know, what happened? Like, I can't, I just cannot imagine how that must feel like. Death, devastating. Like, what has actually happened? And there's somebody that knows, somebody's out there that knows what happened and they know what they did. Um, and they're not coming forward or the answers are not there. And that's just absolutely awful. And, we, you know, again, we just want to acknowledge that loss for those families and, and those children. And so just to say as well, you know, you talk about the 16 children that were murdered. Mm. There's also 131 children left in Ireland without murders, without mothers because of these murders, you know. Um, that's, a, that's a lot of children out there, you know. Mm. So the loss um, and the, the impact of these murders is, is devastating and, and ongoing. 
Uh, and a lot of people impacted, obviously, uh, as well, uh, not just uh, those uh, in uh, the immediate family, uh, but uh, there's uh, swathes of uh, people uh, who would uh, be known uh, to those children who have died and their uh, families and uh, neighbours, uh, oh. quite often school friends yeah. and so on. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah, really, really good point, because, um, you know, I've been talking to families and they've been telling me about, you know, the, the school children, you know, you know, their children's, um, in the case of, you know, where children, um, have been murdered, you know, they're, they're actually, you know, their friends, their, their, their classmates, uh, the people in their local sports clubs, um, you know, nieces and nephews, cousins, so many, you know, young children kind of going, what has happened and trying to make sense of something that, you know, even adults cannot make sense of. Mm. Um, and there needs to be support. And that's something we're also calling for, like support, proper like counselling and support provided to families and to communities and to children in those communities as well. Um, and that we need to have, you know, specialist services um, created um, and dedicated to doing that and being ready to, to step in when that's needed, because that makes such a massive difference instead of children, you know, never being mm. talked to or explained to or, or, you know, having that opportunity to talk about what's happened. OK. Uh, you mentioned mm. coercive control, uh, Gillian, and, and quite often mm. uh, women will be very uh, afraid because everything they do is being watched, uh, whether they're on social media or making phone calls or whatever. Uh, and uh, we're about to give out uh, your 24-hour helpline. If women would like to seek help but are afraid uh, because uh, somebody might be checking what numbers uh, they called, what can you say to them today? Um, well, something that, you know, that you can do um, is, you know, something if, if you are able to go to maybe to a friend's house, you could always use a friend's phone to call us and using that time um, or a time when he's like out of the house. If he's checking your phone, um, what you can do is, you know, you can look up and delete your uh, call history. We do give a lot of information on our website on www.womensaid.ie and about, you know, safety with your phone and safety with technology. Because as you rightly correctly point out, um, when someone's being controlled, a lot of time actually it's using technology also to control checking phones and checking internet and emails. But there's a lot of guidance out there on, on what to do in terms of that, such as, you know, clearing browsing history, um, maybe setting up a different email. Um, you know, we do accept, you know, we do have um, email communication as well. Um, you, you know, can go on our website and we have, um, you can pop, pop up and, um, you know, talk to someone in Instant Messenger. Um, you know, there's lots of ways of communicating um, with us. Um, but I would say, you know, you know, using families and friends, phones, things like that, you just think trying to, you know, be creative with that. Um, and as I said, reaching out to, you know, specialist services about that as well. OK, and there's somebody at the end of the phone 24 hours a day. It's one eight hundred three four one nine hundred. As you say, that number is available from womensaid.ie. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning, Gillian. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Melinda. That's uh, Gillian Dennehy, Services Manager with Women's Aid. Michael Reed on LMFM. Let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to everybody listening in. Mary wants to know who monitors the use of the government jet and the journey it makes. Is this information in the public domain? And if not, then why not? We, the taxpayers, pay for it, so we should be able to check if it's been used appropriately as not, and not as some sort of taxi service for the government. Mm, well, the government says the government was on government business, not uh, being taxied to a political event, as we heard earlier. 
Teresa phoned in on the same topic and she says, "Was would the money that was spent on the jet not be better spent putting more beds in the hospitals and helping the homeless? I was in Dublin over the weekend walking down Grafton Street and to see people lying with old covers on top of them on the street and Christmas just around the corner really is so sad, says Teresa. Okay. Jim from Navan says that he welcomes asylum seekers to Ireland who are law-abiding citizens trying to make a better life for themselves, but not those bad eggs, as he describes them, who engage in criminal activity and feels that they should be deported straight away if they are caught involved in criminal activity. Okay. Uh, a text from Fran who says there are asylum seekers everywhere even in containers where is the country getting the money to support asylum seekers uh, while our own people are on the streets says Fran Okay and uh, we use the government jet I think it costs in around 18,000 euro uh, to use uh, the government jet uh, that seems to be the average price Uh, but uh, maybe uh, there's uh, some money that is uh, available Mary says that people must be very desperate indeed if they hide in trucks and trailers to try to get into another country. How can it be controlled and what can be done so that people don't put their lives at risk Mm. in this way? That's what needs to be talked about, says Mary. It really is hard to believe that people would do that, isn't it? Yes. Uh, Joe was also in touch and says that he couldn't believe that this was still going on after those people lost their lives in that tragic uh, incident where that they effectively froze to death and says that the countries of Europe and wider need to get together and sort out how they can try and help those who are fleeing war-torn countries. Which tragic incident? I, I wonder, I presume he's the talking about... Recent. Yeah, I presume yes. he's talking about the 39 people who lost their lives yes. in, in Essex recently, uh, but uh, they decided to get into the back of uh, that truck after other tragic incidents, and there's yes. been many of them over the years. That's right, Michael. Uh, so that's just a fl- couple on that issue. Uh, some in also in relation to violence against women. Uh, listening to your interview with uh, Women's Aid, and you'd wonder, are there warning signs that women should be looking out for? If you love your partner, you never think that they are going to be the ones to kill you. Are there similarities in the cases that have happened in Ireland? Is there any analysis done on this? Well, that's exactly what Women's Aid is suggesting might be the case and uh, are saying exactly that, that analysis of uh, the different killings uh, should be made to see what pattern, if there are patterns uh, that uh, could show up uh, some warning signs uh, so that these killings could be prevented. Anna was shocked to hear the stats from the Women's Aid on the show this morning and says how frightening is it to think that women are more likely to be killed in their own homes. She appreciates services like Women's Aid who are there to help women and their families when they don't feel safe in their own home. She believes that without these organisations the murder statistics could be even higher. Okay. All right. Uh, well, that's uh, one of the reasons uh, they publish uh, that report and they've been doing that now for a, a number of years. Uh, it is always a disturbing reading. Uh, perhaps in time, uh, the statistics will lower and fewer people will uh, come to their demise uh, under such terrible circumstances. But let's talk about uh, something completely different and uh, the quality of water, local water quality was raised in the doll yesterday. Let's hear what uh, Peter Fitzpatrick had to say. On the show, uh, the 2019 Environment Protection Agency report reveals that raw sewage is being released into the environment every day, with coastal areas being the worst. 
In County Loud, six areas have been identified and need investment badly. Blackrock, Castle Bellingham, Dunleal, Omeet, Talent Centre and Dundalk. Omeet is still without a waste, uh, waste uh, water treatment plant. Blackrock and Dundalk are not meeting their legal requirement. Uh, rivers and waterways are also under pressure. What plans has your government uh, tarnish, uh, to combat this? This is not acceptable in this time, so can you please let us know an update on the situation in County Loud? Thank you. The issue generally, can I say, our, our plan is to put billions into uh, uh, investing in, in wastewater treatment facilities through Irish Water uh, and to do that efficiently, and that is, at the moment, as we speak, transforming uh, Cork Harbour, for example, uh, which was one of the uh, most negatively impacted marine environments in the country in relation to raw sewerage. Uh, Irish Water are spending over €90 million Euros putting in place a really comprehensive uh, wastewater facility for the harbour now. Um, so uh, I, I presume they will also get uh, to other parts of the country. Uh, it's not acceptable uh, to be pumping raw sewerage into, into marine environments. Uh, but they, but uh, wastewater treatment facilities are expensive and they take time. Uh, and Irish Water has a very significant capital expenditure programme over the next five or six years uh, to address many of the issues that I think you've, uh, you've outlined. You. Thank you, Tarnisha. That concludes questions. That's uh, the Tarnisha Simon Coveney responding uh, to Peter Fitzpatrick, uh, agreeing with Peter Fitzpatrick uh, that it's unacceptable uh, to pump raw sewage in uh, to local waterways, uh, but saying that it is a big job and very expensive and it'll take time uh, to put the proper plants in place. Uh, uh, and uh, I suppose we just have to be patient. Anyway, let's go back uh, to the phones. What else have people been saying to you this morning? Just going back to the topic of the violence against women, a texter says it's not always men who abuse women, Michael. We need to remember that it can also be the other way around and that should also be highlighted. Another texter, how many men suffer emotional and physical abuse without any help and courts ruling in most cases give custody to partners of the kids, not mm-hmm. the men. Uh, nowadays, there is no excuse for any woman to stay with a man who is threatening violence or is physically or mentally abusing her. There are many of support services out there. Remember if it happens once it will happen again says a caller who didn't want to be named. Joan says that uh, you have to wonder about men's attitudes towards women and how it can be addressed. Having listened to your discussion yesterday with the representative from Carrie and now today despite the inroads made into so-called equality for women says Joan, some men still consider the women to be their punching bag or for abuse or for sex when they want it. Right, okay. Um, we had a call from Anna who says that she can't sing the praises of women's aid highly mm. enough. She had reason to avail of their services in the past to help her and her children and they went above and beyond the call of duty to get them out of a volatile situation they were in and get their lives back on track. She says she doesn't know how she would have coped without that and believes that if this hadn't have happened, she could easily have been a statistic herself. Yeah, indeed. That's uh, the problem. And uh, I'm glad uh, to hear or to think at least uh, that things have improved for you. Finally, if I can go to one comment, just in relation to Verona Murphy and uh, the Fine Gael controversy mm. there, Billy says that he doesn't understand why people are still hounding Verona Murphy over her comments that she's apologised several times since and has gone to great lengths to put across the point she was trying to make. So what more do people want from her? If she withdraws from the election race, will that make people happy and keep 
the mob at bay. Okay, thanks, Billy. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch. Uh, Thanks uh, for bringing us uh, those calls and, indeed, those comments for that matter. Marie, if you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Marie and Maggie are taking calls today. Our telephone number is 1850 715 958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's talk to Fine TD, Fergus O'Dowd, who's on the line. A very good morning to you and uh, thank you, indeed, uh, for joining us uh, and agreeing to talk to us uh, about comments uh, that you made at uh, the parliamentary party meeting uh, this week. Uh, I don't think you expected them to be reported on in uh, the press, but uh, you said you didn't want to share a, a room with somebody who had intolerant views. Yes, yeah, so well, I think the whole point is our society, our political discourse, our debate is coarsened very significantly. Uh, and people, people have been making comments, some who are TDs, some who aren't. And I just feel that we need to have a balance in our parliament in relation to how we debate issues and protocols around that. And I think the fundamental point is respect for all people, including minorities, particularly people who are recently come to our shores. And also, obviously, the fact that as our economy changes and we're moving into full employment, we're going to need more and more people coming into our country to take up jobs that either we can't fill or only people coming in from outside have the capacity or the interest in doing them. So I think it, it really, it's really all about celebrating our diversity, celebrating our multiculturalism. That's the, the Ireland I believe in. And my point is that um, when I stand in all Erin, I stand with people with all different views and all different parties and none. Mm. And I just feel that there must be fundamental principles attached to that debate, which are based on respect, mutual respect, and obviously uh, understanding rather than hostility and and negativism. And in some cases, and I'm not naming anybody, and it's not aimed at anybody in particular, you know, there's, there's incitement to, you know, to, to, to very negative and bad opinions that are absolutely unacceptable to me. I meet people all the time who express strong views to me. And where I meet, obviously, I can debate an issue with anybody, but when I detect, you know, racism, when I detect, you know, other issues and we know what they are, I am I'm deeply unhappy with that and I, I am intolerant of that personally. And if people make statements uh, that you feel are inappropriate, uh, is it acceptable uh, if they uh, themselves accept that it was wrong and then retract them? Uh, or, or should well, there I think be people more? People do. People, people do. We do all make mistakes. Obviously, for me to make a mistake and say something as a TD is less forgivable than if I'm a member of the public, if I'm a candidate for office. You know, there, there are levels of knowledge and mm. participation that you have knowledge of. So there are degrees of errors, obviously. And for a TD to say what some TDs have said is utterly unforgivable. And to band all Africans as people who are over here for A, B and C is something I utterly and totally reject. Uh, 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 you know, and the other point I want to make is, Michael, on a personal level, which I did say at the party meeting, I come, my father was a Kerry man. There was, I think, 13 in his family. They were all poor. Mm. They had less than 30 acres. All of his family, and he was one of the youngest, they emigrated to America. They got a home in America and they, they, into their household came money to feed the children and to get them clothes to get to school. They actually went to school with, with, with no shoes for many, many years. And that's, that's where we all come from. 
and it's respect for that, respect for the battles we fight in England, we fight in America, and our knowledge, our families, I don't know how many people listening to me have sons, brothers, sisters in England, in America, and across Europe. And, I mean, we do have migrants coming into our country, uh, from obviously from other parts of Europe, which are much poorer. We have them coming in from Africa, from outside the EU. Uh, we have an issue there last night where 16 people were on a refrigerated truck, yeah. uh, thinking they were going to the UK, apparently, and they could all have died on their way. So there are huge societal issues. Okay, I don't... Uh, I, 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 we must I don't... respect all these people. Okay. We must... We must we must educate ourselves in our public debate, and we must not cheapen it. It's right and proper that you can say if there are going to oppose for a hundred people to come into a small village yeah. all of a sudden, whether that's the appropriate way to settle people. That's a legitimate argument, but it's not a legitimate, legitimate argument, you know, to carry out and to say other things which are racist and their motivation. Okay, I don't uh, think Noel Grealish apologised for what he said about Africans, uh, but if he did, because he's well, I've expressed my view to him. I've told him. Mm. While I respect him as a person, obviously I know him. I absolutely reject utterly what he said. Uh, and I've said that to him, uh, and, I, and it's unforgivable that he said it because he's a it's TD. Because he's a TD. Yes, because he's there to represent people. And well, people Verona, Ver- Ver- Verona Murphy is a, an election candidate. Uh, is it she possible? Is, is. is it possible yeah. to forgive her for what she said? Well, Michael, that's a decision which the people will make next Thursday, and I'm, I'm oh, sorry, next Friday. I made it very clear at my reported remarks in, in one paper, whoever gave them to me, I don't know, it certainly wasn't me. I made it clear I'm mentioning no person by name and no location by, by preference or by, by politics. What I'm saying is, mm. what I'm really thinking, Michael, is that we need to move to the next stage. And I know that my views are strongly held in other parties as well as Fianna Gael, they're in Fianna Fáil, they're in the Labour Party. They're among a lot of independent people and Sinn Féin. And I think we need, and this is what I'm just thinking it through, we need protocols or we need principles that we sign up to. And those principles are universal. If you stand for this party or whoever the political but, parties are, that you sign up to those protocols. Are, are you willing to... Break are, them. Are, are, are you willing to, to, to say whether you would or would not forgive? Uh, I mean, is there any point in pressing you on Verona Murphy's comments? Well, Michael, I, 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 that, that is a decision for the people of Wexford. OK, so there's no point in me pressing you on that. I don't, Michael, you know yourself. Look, mm. I think it's bigger than all of us. It's bigger than me. It's bigger okay. than everybody. Okay, but, and I just want to say one but, but she has... Made, okay, sorry, go ahead. Make, make, no, no, I just, I just want to say one other thing. It might be slightly separate to what you were going to ask me, but what we have in Drogheda tomorrow... We have, I'm involved in a group called Hands for Unity, and there's a lot of people of different countries involved. And there's a celebration of Drada's multiculturalism, our, 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 our celebration, our dances, our food, our, mm. our people, our, our colours, everything is on tomorrow in the Barbican between two and eight. And it, be, I'd love if you could go there because some wonderful people who are newly into our country have made tremendous progress, are making a very positive contribution. And that's the way. I want our society to go. That's what I work for. And everybody's welcome there tomorrow. And it's just a celebration. We love all the people that, okay. that, that make up our well, society. Well, that sounds well right? worth mentioning. make them uh, feel, feel welcome. Ha- hands for Unity, 2 to 8 in the Barbican Centre tomorrow. Yes. Uh, and I'm yes. delighted that you've highlighted that for us. Uh, but uh, you have said that you wouldn't be able to forgive Noel Grealish uh, for what he said about Africans, because he's a, a TD, uh, there's a greater responsibility. On, yes, on uh, and of course, uh, and you won't say uh, which is uh, your privilege. Uh, how you feel uh, as to 
whether it's possible to forgive Verona Murphy or not, uh, personally. That's my position. Yes, and, 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 and I respect that. Uh, but can I ask you about Leo Vratker and the comments that Taoiseach made about Albanians and Georgians? I was asking Helen McEntee about this uh, this morning because uh, the problem with Noel Grealish's comments is that he tarred all Africans with the same brush. It would seem to me that the Taoiseach tarred all Albanians and Georgians with the same brush. Do you agree? Well, uh, well, to be honest, uh, I think what Leo said, what I, I, I honestly can't remember, but you can explain for what he actually said if you wish, but I do know what he did say, and I heard him say in the doll, that when it comes to racism, uh, he has suffered as a result of that as well. So I don't think, uh, I, I think because his ethnicity is mixed in terms of his mum and his dad, uh, like he understands the issues perhaps more than anybody. So, like, my point is that the, the, the political debate is 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 going is going it, it, to me. We need to we need to bring it into a more inclusive, uh, accountable, particularly on the office that you hold, uh, the status that you have as a candidate. Even all of those things need to change now, and that, it, it, like, I I I won't tolerate personally racism or, or all of those issues. I just have no time for them and that's mm. that's why, that's one of the reasons Alright, but the, the shop said I that I mean, people people are just, people are concerned about the amount of asylum seekers coming here and we see I mean, as you said, sometimes there's uh, merit in the arguments and legitimate arguments and people are worried about the services and the infrastructure for course, refugee and services and, right and so on. Uh, but but Leo Radker said that the, the, the problem here is the people from Georgia and Albania that they're the big drivers behind a rise in asylum seekers coming here uh, and they're coming here with fake documents. Uh, well, I think the point is, wherever they come from, they, they, they fall into two categories. One is that you're you're in what they call term an economic migrant, mm. and the other one is that you're fleeing from persecution and from and from discrimination. Mm. Uh, so I think that there are two categories, and I think people who are who are fleeing from persecution and from intolerance uh, that, that well, there's are, people fleeing here from uh, persecution uh, and intolerance uh, from, and Albania, are, from Albania from um, Albania and from Georgia sure. uh, but uh, not well, I'm not going to sit in judgment on, on any, I guess not my job but there are people who do and I, I, I see a difference between economic migrants and a difference between people uh, leaving uh, you know conflicts like in Syria war zones people who have who are you know, because of their religion, will be killed or will mm. be assassinated or whatever. I have an issue. I have no issue with them at all. But, but, uh, but, uh, but are you not setting the uh, bar uh, at a, a higher level for Noel Grealish than you are for Leo Vradker? Uh, I mean, well, it seems I, as though I'm, there's two I'm, different sets of rules here. That Leo, that Leo yeah. Vradker can say uh, that all Albanians and all Georgians are the same. Well, I don't know if he uh, said that, Michael, but I'll be honest with you. Well, he said that the, no, the big I, drivers, I, those people from those <clears> countries, are the big drivers behind rising asylum seekers and well, that they're coming here on fake yeah. documents. So that is putting them all in into the same boat, if you like. Well, uh, Noel, I, I, Noel, Grealish, Noel Grealish has been criticised by you and others because he's put all Africans into the same boat. Uh, well, I, I'll tell you what, Michael, I said I'm not perfect and I don't pretend to be, uh, but my view is that I think that within the walls of my party I started this debate and I have no issue mm. taking up all those issues and I would like, in fact, to talk to my colleagues in other parties about this to try and get a consensus on a the language that we use, uh, and obviously to to be aware and alert and understand and appreciate concerns that people have. Part of the problem in Galway was that there was no prior consultation, so mm. people uh, like the people feared the worst. Like 
uh, and and obviously they're concerned about schools, school places. They're concerned about doctors. But the other point I think needs to be made strongly too that in the west of Ireland, particularly, there are schools that are closing down. There are schools that can't hold on to their teachers because they don't have enough children. They can't get services because the the, the doctors won't get an economic mm. living in those areas. So so there's another argument. Okay, for, but, for and, increased, and, that, and that, uh, that is an argument. But it, it, there's a real problem when you say. All Africans are whatever, or if you say all Australians are whatever, uh, because well, Michael, I'm not. I'm not denying the, the logic of what you're saying. I'm just saying what I'm thinking, what I feel, and what I feel I have to say is a TD, and it's not 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 all my judgments. By no means are they perfect, but I think what I want to see and what I'm working for is equality, is a fairness, uh, building a society that's inclusive. And that, and that, and that's why I think this hands for unity tomorrow mm. is hugely important because it's the Ireland of the future. Okay, and the Ireland of the past is a different place. Just to conclude, uh, when you said you wouldn't share the parliamentary party room with any TD who had an intolerant views about immigration, uh, does that mean uh, that you'll be in a predicament if Verona Murphy is, no. if she no, is, no. If, she, if she is elected? No, because what we actually decided was that next week and the week after, we're going to talk about, uh, you know, how how we work out. What I want to talk about is protocols that we either sign up to or we don't, uh, principles that we sign up to or we don't. And if we all sign up to those principles, they're Fianna Gael principles, but I don't believe they're not Fianna Fáil or Labour or, or Sinn Féin. We all like their basic humanitarian principles. The basics, uh, and if I'm happy to sign up to those, and I think if somebody doesn't want to sign up to them, well, then they have to be in a different room to me. And you need a, a formal process for vetting candidates before they stand for your party. Well, I think that point was raised. I mean, you know, obviously nobody's perfect. We all do things from particularly when we're younger that we wouldn't do today. You know, so we all have. You know, there's nobody. There's nobody that hasn't got. That, Something that they don't want to talk about. Yeah. But uh, there's a question of, of, of bigger issues. And obviously, whether you're in a legal action is one of them. Uh, you know, you know, what, you know, have you been a member of other political, you know, you know yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's broad, there's broad, broad brush strokes uh, that should apply to everybody. But I think it's important, Michael, that you have me on your show and that we're talking mm-hmm. about it. And like, I mean, I, I didn't have to say what I did. I'm mm. proud, the first person to do it. But I'm happy doing it because I think I think it's proper okay. that our modern Ireland is, is that we we have to deal with all these issues. Okay, and we appreciate you doing it. And uh, we'll just uh, reiterate uh, that uh, that hands for unity event is taking place uh, between two and eight in the Barbican yeah. uh, Centre. Thank you. That's great, okay. Michael. Thank, Thank you very, very, very much. Much Thank appreciated. Uh, that's uh, Fine Gael TD in Louth, Fergus and out. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the aforementioned uh, Fergus O'Dowd raised uh, an issue in uh, the Dáil yesterday about resources uh, that are allocated to, to groups uh, that are trying to tackle drug use and uh, abuse locally. We'll hear some of uh, the response now from uh, the Minister with Responsibility for Drugs, Catherine Byrne. Uh, there's nobody falling back on leadership here, not in my in my department, and certainly not with Minister Harris. I've spoken to Minister Harris only in the last number of days about the relevance around drug addiction
region and how important it is that we get into the heart of communities and try and understand the issues that are happening, not only with criminal activity, but the, understand what's happening in homes in communities like this. And as somebody who is very familiar, coming from a background where I saw addiction as a big, big uh, destroyer of lives right from early young age and onwards, I, 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 I can commit here and now that I have no problem meeting anybody. But what I can commit is that I have a pocket of money that I can give people. I have X amount of money. We saw through the Drugs Task Forces, with their support of relocating money that we had through Pacific projects. And 13 task forces came back with Pacific projects that they wanted to do. And we funded them. And two of them have been in the area. In that. I will, however, um, relay um, back to Minister Harris and... You don't have to put it in writing to meet these people. I have no problem in meeting them. But I do want to stress, and I do want to stress this, um, Chair, that I believe if we give out money, no matter to task forces or to HSE, the most important things to me as Minister for State is the governance of, of, of task forces and the HSE and the accountability. And I have on my desk about 10 different letters that have arrived to me in the last number of weeks regarding people having issues on the ground with task forces and the distribution of, of funding. And I need to deal with them as the Minister. I will not stand over giving money to just projects who do not use that money to specifically deal with young people and older people and middle-aged people in addiction. This money should be going into addiction services. And as far as I'm concerned, when money goes into a task force, it has to be focused on those people on the ground. But I will, Deputy O'Dowd, without a doubt, um, meet the people you're talking about. I will say to Minister Harris, I can't, uh, I can't vouch for his, um, his appearance at any, any meeting, but I certainly will meet them. Catherine Byrne uh, responding uh, to Fergus O'Dowd in uh, the Dáil yesterday, one of uh, the people uh, who she was referring to there when she said she'd meet them is with us. Uh, that's uh, P.O. Smith, who's a Labour Party councillor and uh, represents uh, the Red Door Project. Uh, a very good morning to you and uh, well, thanks for joining us. Uh, explain to us what the Minister was talking about there when she was saying that money wasn't being spent, money that was being allocated to help people with addiction problems but wasn't being spent uh, on helping those people with those problems. I have absolutely no idea what she's talking about. She must have information about other dra- <coughs> drugs task force areas and, and projects uh, that uh, aren't spending the money as she would probably hope that would be the case. But I mean, in our situation, uh, she isn't referring to the Red Door project, that's mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Or, or indeed, uh, the Homeless Aid or the Women's Refuge or any of the projects in, in, uh, in and around the northeast region. But she sounds very annoyed and mm. frustrated mm. that money that should be spent through projects such as yours mm. is going somewhere else for God knows what. Yeah, well, I'd love to know the answer to that question myself and maybe she should have said it because uh, the bottom line is there's no point in kind of going half down the road and not finishing off what you have to say because I know in our project, <coughs> for example, there are people working with me who haven't had a pay increase in eight years because the same amount of money that's coming in in 2014 uh, and before in 2011 is, is is coming in now and the demand has risen and we've talked about that before mm-hmm. and you've highlighted that issue before and at this stage of the game we would not be in operation in Drogheda unless it was for the fact that we fundraise and the public support us in relation to our flag day and, and <clears throat> uh, other projects that we do and that the, uh, the Sisters of Mercy had given us the building free of charge for use for the people of Drogheda <clears throat> mm-hmm. and that's the only reason that we are still in business Okay, uh, and can you explain to us uh, the difference between the demand and the type of addiction over the course of the late, uh, last eight years? It's just risen com- 
you know, you just can't put figures on it, really, because mm. if you start off in 2011, 12, 13, and look at the, 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 the services in Drada, they were literally non-existent. The Red Door Project came into being. And then uh, from then until now, uh, I'd say we're seeing about, uh, engaging about 2,000 engagements a year mm. <clears throat> with people. You know, people coming in to drop in, people coming in for advice, families coming in, family support, uh, trying to give key work to individuals, linking in with their GPs, the social workers, the probation officers, then providing counselling and uh, then having the community employment scheme that exists at the minute. And really, I think at this stage of the game, uh, some realistic thinking has to come about from government in relation to uh, drugs, drug use, the drugs economy in the country and how they allocate money because it isn't real. It isn't mm. real at this point in time. And in fairness to Catherine Bourne, she has been down mm. with us and Fergus mm-hmm. has done a lot of work in this regard and uh, Catherine has been down. I think she's as frustrated as anybody else. Well, she sounds very frustrated there, yeah. especially to think that yeah. money is going uh, to uh, projects uh, to help people uh, and is not being spent uh, on doing that. Uh, what about the money that you're given and, and how you spent it, spend it? Is it effective? Uh, do people come to you with addiction problems and give up? Well, addiction being the type of disease that it is, and, and you know, I want to emphasise that the disease model that that's the way it is in Ireland, and it's a recurring, relapsing uh, disease. And I mean, if somebody said mentioned heart disease, we have a certain perception of people who suffer from heart disease or any other type of disease. But mm. if you mentioned addiction as a disease, uh, you know, it takes a while for people to get their head around it. So yeah, people will come in. And they will listen and they will try. I mean, nobody wants to get up in the morning and start injecting themselves with, with uh, heroin and living that type of a life. Uh, they do try. And it's very, very mm. difficult for us to give them the type of supports that they need because we don't have uh, the, the personnel on the ground that is required for, to meet the demand. We don't have the time then to be able to give sufficient time to all of the people that need it. So what we have to do then is that allocating time, categorising people about where they are and trying to give some people uh, attention over other people, mm-hmm. and which isn't really the proper way to go about doing things. Uh, but to keep the show on the road, that's what we have to do. Mm-hmm. They are the decisions that have to be made. And I think the frustration for Catherine Bourne is <clears throat> uh, that people... Uh, above four in terms of government level who allocate funds and money and budgets do not take uh, the drug situation in this country seriously they don't take mental health seriously she gets it because she knows what she's seen it firsthand. but the people above four don't get it mm. simple as that uh, if you were the drugs minister yourself uh, or uh, if uh, you were able to tackle to, to, to lay the groundwork for tackling the drugs problem what would you do? Well I think we have to we have to look at funding uh, the community. If we want the community to take an active role in regards to addressing the drugs issues in our towns and villages across the country, that means we have to adequately fund them. We have to to make sure uh, that there are sufficient posts available for people to deal with the demand for counselling services for uh, the families that are suffering and to be able to support the uh, the families also that are suffering from intimidation and drug debt as well. So the amount of money that's spent in regards to stopping the supply coming into mm. the country is massively bigger than the amount of money that's spent in relation to the areas I'm after describing. Mm. So there has to be some balance. If you can reduce the demand for drugs in this country, you will then have more money freed up to do other things. Currently, we spend so much money 
on policing, etc. Because that's the visible aspect of the drugs problem. And it's not just policing the drugs, it's policing the crime related to the drugs, such as the burglaries. The burglaries, the the prison services, everything like that. Mm. I mean, there is, you know, in in the States and the UK, they've done a significant amount of studies in this regard. They've modelled as well as real life experiences in relation to money that's invested in the community. And it, and the average figure coming out is one in four. So for every euro you spend in the community, you're saving four in the exchequer. Mm. It's, but it's not getting through to the people who make the decisions. Because basically, people see visibly uh, somebody struggling with drugs on the street. And they think that's the drugs problem. It isn't the drugs problem. It's part of it, but it isn't it. I mean, a large part of the drugs problem is Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. When people are going out, after the jobs at the weekend, letting off a bit of steam and they're fueling the drugs economy. So-called recreational use. Exactly. Yeah. So-called yeah. Recre- mm. recreational use. Mm. The people that we're seeing on the streets mm. are people who who are very badly damaged. Mm. and Who are uh, treating themselves in actual fact. Uh, I mean, you spoke a moment ago about somebody who injects themselves every day with heroin and they don't want to do it. And why would they want to do it? Uh, well, the only reason they do it is so that they can feel some sense of normality. Without the heroin, they're very, very sick. It's not as if they're getting high or stoned or uh, having some sort of drunk feeling as a, a result of putting that into their bodies. Yeah. You talk to people and they'll tell you eventually that the liking part of it is gone. Mm. Very quickly, apparently. Yeah, and, mm. the, and the problem with it is, you see, this, this is a brain mm. disease, and people don't get that, that it's a mm. brain disease. You know what I mean? So they, they want it, but they don't like it. And understanding those two different concepts can be difficult for mm. the general public to understand. And therefore, we make, and I was mm. including myself in this, we often make judgments on people uh, that are completely inaccurate and completely wrong. Mm. And it's not just a brain disease, though. It's actually a, a physical addiction. Without yeah. uh, the medicine as it becomes, uh, you're sick. Yeah, when, mm. when I say it's a brain disease, mm. your brain actually changes you know mm. what I mean so mm. the areas in, part, in the part of your brain that got to do with pleasure and expectation mm. etc and all that type of stuff okay. they actually physically change okay Catherine Murphy or Catherine Byrne uh, says uh, you, you, you say she gets it uh, she says she'll meet with you uh, what have you got to say to her if she already gets it but she can't get extra money <clears throat> Mark Deary made a very good point he said that basically the Minister for Health should be the Minister for Drugs, simple as. Because if that's the case, then there's a realistic viewpoint in relation to the problem of drugs and mental health. And that currently doesn't exist at this point in time. If you look at the budget, the way the budget is allocated every year, you've got labelled and unlabeled amounts of money that are go- that go to drugs. Now, how you find out what's in the unlabeled is a minefield. And if you look at the label part of it, it, it turns out at 0.09% of GDP, which is 280,000. And we know there's more than that spent. But if you look at the northeast area, I mean, nationally, there's 27 million. But for four counties in, in, in this area, where there's a half million people living, uh, we get about uh, 900,000. Mm. And there's one of the areas closing down in Cavan Monaghan, and uh, they're struggling mm. because basically they have got massive rent to pay and they haven't got the money. Yeah, and we talk about burglaries, but there's so much more to it. The health service, uh, assault, uh, other crimes uh, that take place uh, and all of that uh, costs money uh, as a result of uh, the problem existing. Uh, and uh, unless you stop the existence of the drugs problem, you're going to have to continue paying that's, for these. That's exactly like it. I mean, I mm-hmm. talk to friends of mine in Blanchestown. They're trying to run a programme in the schools up there called Think Before You Buy. We've, mm. we, the Red Door's been in contact with the guards in relation to this programme. You know, getting money from government is impossible. Just okay. to have a simple programme to go to the schools. P.O., thank you indeed for coming into us uh, this morning. Labour Party Councillor P.O. Smith. 
Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now to uh, the discovery yesterday of 16 males found in uh, the trailer of an articulated lorry travelling on uh, the ferry from Cherbourg uh, to Ross Lair. Let's talk uh, about this with Nick Henderson, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of uh, the Irish Refugee Council. And uh, a very good morning to you, Nick, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, Gardaí say all 16 men are well. Uh, but a, a lot of people wondering... How could they have put themselves in such danger? It's a, a, a very reasonable question, isn't it, given what we know already about this type of um, travel? Yes, and unfortunately people are required to put themselves uh, in the back of a lorry or try to get themselves in the back of a lorry that may be re- refrigerated. Uh, they probably don't know where that's going or they've been told by a smuggler where it's going. Um, and they may not know when uh, they're going to get off. And they were probably aware also of what happened in Essex in October, which was so horrific when uh, I think 39 people died. Um, People put themselves in this situation because it's very difficult to leave a country where you may be experiencing war or persecution and travel to a safe country. There's no visa to claim asylum. So if you or I were in a country where we felt at risk, and we wanted to go to the Irish embassy and claim protection at that embassy, that wouldn't happen. There's no mechanism for that. So people have to leave. Uh, they may have to travel across borders uh, uh, in an illegal way, uh, and they may indeed have to cross the Mediterranean. And mm. we know from watching our TV screens what's going on there. Okay, uh, just watching the TV screens of uh, the ferry in high seas yesterday, yeah. it seemed like a very unpleasant journey for normal passengers, if I, I can put it that way, but to be in the dark of uh, an articulated uh, lorry in a, a closed a, a, in such a confined space, uh, whilst uh, the boat was uh, going through those conditions, uh, must have been a, an incredible thing for these people. We're told that they were all Kurdish nationals, uh, what kind of a journey would they have experienced, all told? Yeah, in my experience of working people in this situation, uh, perhaps they would have left uh, Kurdistan by uh, by foot, maybe travelled to Turkey, and then possibly in Turkey or in Greece tried to engage an agent, an agent who would smuggle them uh, into Europe. And there's an important difference between trafficking and smuggling. Trafficking is where somebody's moved for a purpose, for example, labour or sexual exploitation. Smuggling would be where somebody pays another person, an agent, uh, to take them from one country to another. So when I worked in in this area as a practitioner, as a, a caseworker, helping people, often people would be put in, my clients would tell me that they'd be put in the back of a lorry uh, and they would be in that lorry for, for many hours. It may be transferred to another lorry in the middle of uh, a country, possibly France, and then from that second lorry they would travel to the place where they would claim asylum it seems to me and reading the reports today that the the, the men and i think there was a mm. boy included uh, thought they were going to the uk so the the smuggler the agent who's taken them from one place to another is probably giving them uh not entirely accurate information and will be taking money from them to for the purpose of this journey and if they leave Kurdistan and enter Turkey, is it that they would be trying to flee Turkey as quickly as possible, given uh, the Turkish attitude towards uh, the Kurds? Uh, we saw them try to annihilate the Kurds after being given a green light by Donald Trump recently. Indeed. So the, this, as you said, uh, and I'm not an expert in Turkish-Kurdish relations, but there's an ongoing issue. And uh, so, as you say, they're unlikely to have felt that they would be given access to 
protection in Turkey, uh, and that's probably been compounded by what's gone on in recent recent weeks. Uh, so they would then travel, maybe travel via Greece, and Greece itself has received many huge numbers of people seeking asylum in recent mm. years. And the situation in the camps, particularly on the islands such as Lesbos, is particularly bad at the moment, uh, and people are living in very difficult conditions there, so they may not have felt they would be safe there. And then they would begin a journey across into Europe, and it's very difficult for, for, for people to know where they would ultimately go. I don't think this, mm. it's not as if there's a menu which says, I'd want to go to the UK, or I want to go to Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, you're in the hands of powerful people, smugglers, um, to take you to a particular country. And as, as we said at the beginning, people are forced into this situation. Um, there is a there's an absence or a lack of what we would call safe and legal pathways to protection. Uh, Ireland has developed some of these things in recent years. Most notably, the Navy uh, did amazing and very mm. proud work in rescuing more than 18,000 people. We've also uh, relocated some uh, young people, unaccompanied minors from Greece and Calais, albeit in small numbers, and we've also opted into relocation schemes. So good things have happened, but this is against the backdrop of huge need, um, and it means ultimately that people continue to take these dangerous journeys. I think it's expected uh, that uh, the 16 people uh, who were discovered yesterday will now seek asylum here. Yeah. Uh, what are they facing into? Uh, I don't think many people would envy them. No, so they will be transported to Dublin probably, they claim asylum, and then they would enter the direct provision system, and at the moment that's in real, uh, ultimately, crisis, and that direct provision is full, and it's full for three reasons. Increase, modest increase in the number of people seeking asylum, we would say that's manageable. Slow decision-making and people uh, struggling to leave that system when they get status. So they'd enter that system, they may be accommodated in a mainstream DP centre, or emergency accommodation which is hotels and B&Bs which is, is direct provision is a much criticised system um, but emergency accommodation is also very very problematic people not meeting uh, not able to access basic services uh, in terms of how long they'll wait we this week figures were published about average waiting times and that was around 15 months so they're probably going to have to wait 15 months unless their case is prioritised for a first instance decision. And they won't be able to apply for work until nine months. So they're in effect going to have to wait uh, for that period of time. Uh, we would be calling on the government because waiting times for, are so long and they've been like this for many months, if not years, uh, to reduce the number of months that somebody must wait before they can apply to permission to work. It doesn't make sense for anybody, neither the individual nor the state, um, not the taxpayer to have people languishing and uh, unable to contribute and work. Okay, well, they've come a, a long way. Uh, uh, I suppose uh, they'll be happy that they've survived the journey, if nothing else. Uh, unfortunately, we have to leave there for the moment. Nick, thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Nick Henderson, Chief Executive of the Irish Refugee Council, brings our programme to its conclusion this week. I hope you have a lovely weekend. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.